Well, uh, extremely honored uh, today to be sitting down virtually with uh, Lisa Petrucci, who is now running something weird video uh, solo, um, or at least with the, you know leading the team. Uh, so, Lisa, thank you so much for making time for this. Oh, hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, and you are currently in the Seattle area, is that right? Yes. Um, something weird is based in a. Um, town just north of Seattle called Shoreline, um, even though our PO box is in Seattle. So yeah, just about 10 okay. miles north of downtown. And, and the something weird that I grew up knowing, uh, I, I primarily know it as an archive and, uh, well, actually that's kind of how I primarily got to know it was through an archive. And then I know Mike was very active in sort of, you know, talks and, and being a public face for preservation of, of genre films. But um, was it, you know, what, what is the, the current state of something weird today? Because I know you have partnerships with a few different places. Are you an archive first? Um, is, that, is that how you would describe yourself? Well, what's interesting is that, you know, I mean, as you probably should start off by saying that Mike Franey, the founder of Something Weird, um, he started it in 1990, passed away in 2014. So after mm -hmm. his death, um, we, you know, said, well, me, we, I, I, I still say we, even though it's just me now, <laughs> but uh <laughs> as far as something weird archive goes, it was his intention for me to like find a new home for it. And okay. ideally, I think he like wanted, you know, me to find just one entity that would be willing to take everything and, you know, pass the baton and have me stay on as a consultant and advisor and all of that. But um, he had accumulated probably, and, and I'm not exaggerating, I mean, because it's it was spread out over a lot of places, 300 tons of film elements. Over, oh my gosh. You know, yeah. Okay. So, you know, he really started collecting, you know, actual film elements in about 1992. And ever, you know, at once he discovered that there was so much out there that had, it was lost, he made it his mission to find as much of it as he could. So, you know, he would just buy a lot of different archives or he would, you know, go into partnerships with people um, or, you know, families would deposit their you know fathers as um, archives with us um you know and we would license them from them and so it, over the years you know we, we ended up like i said thousands and thousands and thousands of 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter films so i really had like you know i, I knew that like i was gonna have to do something with all of that but my like goal was just finding the right place and when it came down to right. it there really wasn't one place that excuse <clears throat> me we could do that so um what I decided to do was something weird. And, you know, after having discussed this with Mike is just to start working with partners and, you know, other film archives and video companies mm -hmm. who did have, you know, very reputable archives themselves and kind of curate them um, so that like certain bodies of film went to different places. So that's pretty much the state mm -hmm. of something weird now. I mean, as far as like what's left in the physical um, film archive, there's still some like, dregs I'll call them that films that nobody like orphan films um left in the warehouse and then my garage is not been touched at all it's all 16 millimeter film and you know I occasionally loan them out to people or let people transfer them for projects but um I have a lot of 16 millimeter films still okay um Hundreds and I know that <laughs> that's amazing and uh, thank you for that background and I know at least the big ones that come to mind are obviously the partnership with AGFA and then as it kind of became a vinegar syndrome, you know, partner label. Yes. Um, there's a lot. Um, 
Well, the, the background as far as like how the transition from something weird, you know, just being something weird video to being what I'm just calling it now something weird because we're doing a lot of different projects under that moniker um, was that after like, you know, kind of throwing <laughs> a few balls out there to see who would catch them. Nobody did. I got a cold call one day from AGFA and it wasn't actually from AGFA. It was Alamo Drafthouse. Um, Zach Carlson mm -hmm. called me and said, hey, I you know heard from a couple of our colleagues that you're looking for a home for the something weird film archive and you know we might consider being that home and I said well you know I should probably have somebody come out here and assess what's uh, you know we still have which was a lot and see if that's even possible so Tim League um, had come to Seattle because he was working with Scarecrow Video and helping them set up the nonprofit organization and yeah. um, I took him to the warehouse and he was pretty overwhelmed and he said, you know, because uh, I really want to do this, but it's just, it's overwhelming. I mean, it really is a lot. It's a lot. So um, he yeah. said, let me talk with, you know, AGFA and see what ideas we have. And, you know, I'd given him an inventory list of the original 35 millimeter film elements. And, and a lot of them were negatives, which, you know, makes them even more, you know, valuable and desirable as well. So, yeah. um, you know, I soon heard from them and they said, what do you think about, you know, as cherry picking the collection and, you know, being partners. And, you know, I think we got the idea about like them getting a film scanner and starting to do restorations of, you know, the, the films that had already been out like in standard definition, but doing like 2K and 4K scans. And that sounded like a really good idea to me, but, you know, it also had to be within the parameters of this certain parts of the Something Weird archive that have to stay together. So I, you know, you can't do it piecemeal. And okay, I ended up, sense. you know, picking up probably some of the like, you know, what I, what I would call the something weird greatest hits, you know, films like Curious Dr. Hump and Monster yeah. at Camp Sunshine and She Mob and, you know, a lot of my favorites, which you know, I was really happy that they went to that home. And, um, and then they in turn actually put me in touch with Nicholas Winding Refn, um, who is, you know, as many people know, a very, you know, prestigious film collector. He's He's got a lot of Andy Milligan films and um, he's done a lot of research and has stuff from the, the Ormans. And um, he was starting to think about doing his own streaming channel. So he came out to Seattle and ended up taking a good portion of the 35 millimeter archive. Once again, you know, in a curated group. I mean, it's like, well, if you're going to take these films, these other ones go with them. <laughs> kind yes, of thing, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I was overseeing all of that. And, you know, and then also over the years, I've been working with Severn Films and Kino Lorber and Mondo Macabro and, and quite a few other companies, The Film Detective, um, Alternative Cinema, they have a pop cinema brand um, that all fit in with something weird. And so I've just been kind of cutting it up into a pie. You know, you get this piece, you get that piece. And uh, as long as you guys brand with something weird, it's, it is a something weird release, so. Uh, that's that's brilliant, and I, you you kind of said this implicitly, but I, I just am curious: is there additional curation that's happening today, or or not? Oh yeah, I mean, there's actually it's funny. What what is left is like stuff that's not the greatest. I mean, like I've got thirty five millimeter <laughs> jungle movies that nobody seems to want to touch. <laughs> I mean, maybe okay. because of the problematic subject matter. I mean, they they what what Dave Freeman would call Guna Guna movies um, or just you know parts of films because a lot of times what would happen is you know you'd get a film archive and there'd be an incomplete print of you know a really great movie but 
you know, big chunk of it's missing. So those ones are just kind of sitting there and then just a lot of shorts and odds and ends and, you know, just some, some of it's just junk. So that, that's what's left there. But as far as the 16 millimeter collection goes, um, I spent the last few years just organizing it because it, it was really just willy nilly <laughs> before um, I spent any time with it and put it uh, together by subjects. So I'm hoping at some mm. point to start reaching out to my partner companies and saying, hey, these are all the, let's say, sword and sandal movies, or these are all the right. Euro spy movies, or, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of um, short subjects and educational films and, you know, just kind of just, you know, uh, oddball stuff that I think could, you know, be good with the other releases that are coming out through these companies. So, because, you know, the thing that's wonderful about most um, boutique labels is that they are putting all the special features and extras. And it's just fun to see like how all of these films get repurposed. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, you know, one of my, the, the, the release that I think I was most surprised with in a, in a positive way uh, was when I think it was, I think it was number three that came out through the Agfa partnership with Vinegar Syndrome. It was Bat Pussy. And that movie made me laugh so hard. Yeah, um, well, and actually, um, that that was before we started working with Vinegar Syndrome. Um, Agfa had been doing um, their original Blu-ray releases with MVD, and oh, very okay. close partners with um, Vinegar Syndrome and a lot of other things. So we just decided to make the transition to what they're calling OS. Um, Say OCN, which OCN is their distribution company for vinegar syndrome. So um, we just started in the last like year and a half having things released through them. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of the uh, MVD released um, Blu-rays have gone out of print. So we are going to probably be re-releasing -re ones like that pussy through OCN. It's just, it's just uh, that that's great to hear. And like you know, a movie like that to have the, all the special features it did and just the attention, you know, that, that was like given to it uh, was great. Oh, thank um, you. Well, it was a labor then, of love. Cause we, we all, I mean, that's probably one of the most beloved movies in the something weird archive. So we wanted to do it right. And you know, Jared said something interesting. Um, that's not surprising to hear, by the way, I think, you know, when, when people hear about the subject matter, they maybe you're shy to watch it. Um, but it's the least erotic movie in history. And it's so funny. <laughs> Very true. Um, Anyways, uh, but there, but if you look across, like, um, is it 101 now that's also putting out ACFA stuff in Region B? Is that right? I'm not sure. Um, maybe. It was just, anyways. Yeah. Yeah. But it just feels like this, this, uh, the, 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 the hunger for these types of film is, are growing. Uh, and that's, that's exciting to see. Well, what um, I've found I interesting, just as, you know, somebody who's been doing this for, you know, since 1994. So I've seen all of the various, you know, just, um, I was going to say all, all the different chapters of something weird where, you know, originally everything was VHS and then we, uh -huh. you know, restored things for DVD and, you know, all of that was just, you know, standard definition. And we thought we were at, you know, oh, we could never get any better than this. And then, you know, years later, having everything restored to high definition and 2K and 4K. I mean, Dave Freeman used to have this expression. I use this all the time in podcasts. People are probably try, tired of hearing it, but um, he would say that, you know, the, oh, these films are like a sack of flour. You know, the more, you keep shaking it out and a little bit more comes out. <laughs> and um, yeah. because there's always going to be somebody who hasn't heard of them. And, you know, obviously there's the hardcore, you know, original something weird fan base who, you know, 
obviously they're all familiar with these films, but what I've really enjoyed over the last eight years working with partners is that, you know, they're reintroducing these films to a brand new audience. And a lot of them are like, you know, younger genre film fans and, um, or just people who weren't aware of something weird. And, but they were aware of, you know, companies like Vinegar Syndrome or Severin or Arrow Films or, you know, those, those other companies that are newer. So um, I've, I've just really enjoyed seeing this happen. And um, also the response to things, because, you know, the, anybody who's a genre film fan, they kind of get it, you know, you don't have to like, exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't have to like explain why you're releasing a movie called Bat Pussy. All they have to do is see it. And they're like, oh yeah, that's why everybody loves this movie. Cause it's just you so get the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You get the benefit of the doubt. Um, and what, one more question about the present before I go back, I'm curious to go a little bit historical quickly, but so you're, you're also streaming a lot of this content now, right? Is it, is it full moon? Um, actually, there's quite a few different, it's the same as with the, the Blu-ray releases. Um, I'm okay. doing different um, partnerships for streaming. And once again, it came down to like, you know, somebody would approach me about, hey, we'd like to have your content on our streaming channel, but we only are interested in this part of it. So it's like, okay, I can, you know, like the first one was Full Moon and they did a really great job, you know, putting together like a, a really nice selection of something weird titles. Chris Alexander, who works with Charlie Band was the one that did all of that. And, um, you know, he's, he's got really good taste. So it was fun to see like a lot of um, just what like, greatest hits movies like on one channel. And yeah. after that, um, I you know, was in touch with some other companies like the Film Detective and they tend to do more classic, um, you know, what would be known as like public domain movies, but they also have rights to their own movies. And it's a little bit more, I, would, I don't wanna say family friendly, but they're not as edgy maybe as some of the other companies. And there, I have content that fits into that really nicely. So they've been releasing those. In fact, um, we've got a, a Blu-ray coming out um, in the next couple of months of Girl on a Chain Gang, um, Jerry Gross's movie. And yeah. um, it's gonna be nice to see that restored. And it's very timely considering everything that's happening socio-politically. So, um, and you know, the other channel um, that we've done stuff with is Night Flight. And okay. once again, you know, they, they're really kind of time, like pop culture time capsule oriented. So it was fun being able to pick out movies for them. And most recently I've been working with cult picks who are based in um, Sweden. And yeah. there's a guy named Rickard Gramfers who, you know, Mike Rainey and I go way back with, you know, doing something weird film festivals in Scandinavia. And he's basically like the Scandinavian something weird. And um, I've been, I guess, you know, giving them a lot of content for their streaming channel. And what I really like about that one is that there's not like, I, I don't have to second guess anything like, oh, is this going to be too abrasive or whatever? I mean, they really want to push the envelope. And nowadays, there's not a lot of companies that want to do that. So um, it, it's been a real joy, you know, being like, okay, you, you can put Bapussy up on a streaming channel or you can, you know, because they've also got relationships with Agfa and Vinegar Syndrome um, or, you know, the Bob Cressy movies, you know, the Ruffies and all this other stuff. So, um, yeah, I'm really, you know, looking forward to getting more and more things out there. And eventually, through some platform, I haven't, you know, pinned it down yet. I mean, I have a couple of ideas and I've been in talks with some people, but there will be a something weird channel, but it's probably going to be part of something else. Um, you know, so you, you will go to like, you know, somethingweirdtv.com or something. I haven't 
haven't done that domain yet. I plan to though. And it'll just be like a subgenre of, of you know, some other company, <laughs> just because I don't want to have to do that myself. And there's so many other people that are way better um, equipped to do it than me. Okay. okay. I just like to tell people what to do, and make it happen. <laughs> uh, well, you want, you want the film, right? So, so you get to be the, uh, you get to have those opinions. There you um, go. <laughs> um, that, that actually is a good segue. Uh, so if, if it's okay, just quickly going back. So you mentioned 1992 is when this started. And then you've been, um, I guess, close to Mike or, or you know, uh, partnered with Mike since 94. Is that what you said? Yeah. So he, um, I mean, he had actually been a, a, a video, um, I'm going to call him a bootlegger, like in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, like everybody was back then. It was like he'd be on mm -hmm. the, um, the fanzines and various collector groups and they were trading videos that were hard to find so that was how we started out that was like pre something weird video and okay. it was once he started finding original films and realized that he could transfer them himself um that was pretty much the the birth of something weird video as people know it now and that would have been around 1990 um yeah. where that started happening but as far as like you know seriously collecting film around 1992 was when he you know just decided okay i'm going to find every bottom of the barrel low budget film there is out there and you know put his mind to it and, and so that just came from a place of feeling like he you know he needed to uh, be, be kind of a voice for these films like a champion for these films because uh because he loved them so much or or what was that where did that initially come from for him well, Mike has always loved film from the time he was a little mm -hmm. kid. Um, he was showing eight millimeter castle films in his garage to the neighborhood kids and charging them a nickel. Okay. And, you know, he was a, a projectionist at the local drive-in um, when he was a teenager. And then in his like early, you know, adulthood, he worked at porno theaters in Seattle. So he liked to be around film and he understood it. Um, but he's also like a lot of different types of film. I mean, you know, he would watch anything as long as it was on celluloid. So, but it wasn't uh -huh. until, you know, he started doing something weird and came across a few archives of things that he was unfamiliar with. Like um, probably the first big archive was in the early 1990s. And it was just like a storage space full of like, like girly loops from the 1930s to the early 1970s and burlesque loops and um, some and there was some porno loops in there and and whatnot wrestling women from the 1950s and 60s and he was like I don't think this stuff has ever been on home video so I think I'm going to transfer it and he did and that was kind of the, the first like official something weird releases that he did that were from a film source and at that point he realized that there must be thousands of these out there so he had a copy of the American Film Institute catalog and just poured over it, you know, and made a list. Okay, these are the movies I got to find. And over the years, he found quite a few of them. So that's interesting. So this this catalog from the American Film Institute, it had like uh, you know, exploitation, or it had like these films coming out of Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. Like it had these these were represented in that catalog. Yeah. Well, what was interesting was that the research that the American, you know. Film Institute did was that they would, I guess, found press books or clippings or whatever. So what they would do is they'd have it, it was alphabetical. I mean, it's ginormous. It's about four inches high. Um, and it was all different types of films. So it, you know, you'd have like, you know, 
a, a, an important like film, you know, from a time period mixed in with like Shima, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, like Gone with the Wind or whatever. But but the one there was one that was like um, based in the like late fifties through the early seventies. So that was the one that he was focusing on, and. Um, just made a, like if it had anything that that sounded because they would use words at, at the end of the description like so it would just be like the name of the film who directed it who produced it um you know the cast and a tiny little like description of what the film was but then there would it was almost like hashtag words but they didn't have that back uh, <laughs> yeah i want to be like so if he saw certain words that were like oh yeah i'd be interested in that he'd write down the title and um i would say we probably were able to found you know, at least a thousand of those movies over the years that he had on his list. Wow. And then once they were there, did you have to then contact the, the, the right holders and sort of, you know, work through that channel or did, did were you able to buy them through the catalog, I guess? Well, no, the catalog wasn't um, like, like a, a type of catalog where you purchased anything. It was more like just okay. a reference, like a, almost like an encyclopedia type thing. Yeah, and right. it was meant for like film historians so that they could, you know, look things up. Um, it wasn't something you could get at like Barnes and Noble <laughs> or anything like that. Yeah, um, but what happened is, I mean, obviously in the early days of, um, you know, the, you know, video and whatnot, um, there was just like not a lot known about how to go about finding the rights to things. I mean, you could hire somebody, which we did in the early days, um, to do copyright searches on things and find out like, you know, who owned the registrations or if something wasn't legally registered, um, which would, you know, I guess technically say, make it gray area or, or public domain. But Mike was fortunate enough to meet um, people who made the films. So in particular, you know, when Dave Friedman came into his life, because um, Mike was selling one of Dave Friedman's movies without his permission and he got a phone call one day. And Dave okay. said to him, oh, hey, kid, you're selling my movie. And Mike's like, yeah, people love it. Got any more? <laughs> and, you know, didn't like, <laughs> you know, back down or anything. And it ended up that he and Dave Friedman got together and, you know, became partners. And, you know, Dave was practically our, you know, he wasn't just our mentor. He was like a father to us over the years. But, um, you know, because he was like the mighty monarch of exploitation film, he knew everybody in the business. So he, he took that opportunity to... Um, you know, introduce Mike to his other cronies, like, you know, Harry Novak, Joe Sarno, uh, Arthur Morowitz, um, and the wow. list goes on and on and on. So um, something weird licensed a lot of films from, you know, the distributors who actually made them in the beginning. And, or, you know, if somebody had passed away, sometimes their family would get in touch with us and you know, say, hey, we have the film archive here, you know, what would you like us to do with it? You know, like, you know, can we do anything? And, you know, we would license it from them as well. So, but then there were times when like, you know, you get a film archive um, that was just like, you know, from a, a storage space or an abandoned depot or one of those situations where you just have to do your homework. And, you know, we always, after, you know, a few times of, you know, in the beginning, Mike didn't really know what he was doing and stepped on a few toes you know, hard lessons were learned. And after that, you just made sure that you did your research. And if there was no rights associated that you could like, you know, put your finger on, then it was safe to say that the film was, you know, just out there, <laughs> you know, it was gonna be out there once yeah. we released it. So, and, you know, only every so often you hear from somebody like, 
you know, oh, you, you, you released my film and, you know, all you can do is ask, well, you know, can you provide your copyright registration? But a lot of times, you know, we, we just would honor that with, you know, a chain of title and be like, you know, because we, we, we don't want any bad feelings between people and us. So just try to make things run as smoothly as possible. But yeah, I mean, a, a lot of films were just kind of discarded, though. I mean, people say that, you know, Mike's done the world this great service because a lot of these films would have ended up in the dump or, you know, Dave Freeman actually dumped films in the Pacific Ocean <laughs> to get, you know, to clear out his archive. None of the original negatives or anything, but, you know, they had multiple prints of films and he didn't know what to do with them. He's like, yeah, I just went out to a pier and dumped them all in the ocean. Oh my gosh. Go tell him. That's probably making every like film um, archivist like skin crawl right now. <laughs> well, no, there's, there's a great story from uh, um, the Monty Python guys where they say, the BBC was about to tape over all their shows and then they had to find some, some money and basically buy their prints. And otherwise the world wouldn't have had Monty Python. Um, just because at that time, you know, they just didn't value preservation. It was like, well, we have a new show coming out and here's some old shows that we don't really, we're not gonna, never gonna need them again. <laughs> well, that's true. And I'm sure that like, you know, a lot of, you know, producers and distributors didn't foresee there being like, you know, home video. And yeah, they probably thought that, you know, they had run their course and they've done their all they can theatrically with those films. So um, but lo and behold, there's all these other opportunities. And it, it seems to keep being, you know, every generation is something new and exciting. And, and like you said, there's collectors are always going to be there. Right. I've, I've been collecting since about 2001. So I started getting in at the DVD days. And I think you all had a pretty active partnership with Image, if I remember right. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, yeah. you know that was probably our most visible, you know, consumer DVD um, project and partnership that we did, because otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, you would have had to hear about something weird through the grapevine or fanzines or you know, um, like conventions, word of mouth. Um, but once Image got involved, like we were in Best Buy and Tower and um, a lot of like consumer places. So yeah. Was that was that surreal for you to see when that started happening? Oh yeah, I mean we never we was just a lap. Like, did you ever think you'd see you know say blood feast sitting at Best Buy <laughs> or you know any of those types of things? So yeah, I mean, and it definitely opened up people's eyes to something weird. We're also really fortunate. Like a few years later, after the DVD deal with um, Image, um, Comcast gave us a channel. I mean, that was crazy. You know, they just contacted us and like, hey, would you like to provide content? We'll give you a channel. So if you went way, way, way deep into their menu, there was actually a Something Weird channel that, you know, you could see short subjects and feature films and all kinds of stuff. And that's where many people discovered Something Weird as well. But um, after about seven years, and I think it might've been around the time that NBC bought Comcast, I think they looked at what they were, you know, actually showing on the channel and pulled the plug. <laughs> <laughs> um that's hilarious yeah that's by the time the executives finally got around to seeing it they were like wait what <laughs> yeah um that's really funny uh last question on history I, I i meant to ask this earlier but you just reminded me talking about blood feast so i'm actually in the middle of an hg lewis run right now um, i'm going through that arrow set that was put out a few years back mm -hmm. they did a beautiful and job 
Oh, it's awesome. I actually got, I was lucky enough to get the cereal box that they put out, that kind of limited cereal box. It's such a great set. Nice. Um, even down to the workbook they put together is so funny. They, they really thought it through. Um, but I, I recently saw something weird and I have to say it was actually for the first time. Obviously I, I knew it was the namesake, but I, I just, for whatever reason, hadn't seen it till recently. What, what was it about that movie that uh, was, was worthy of naming a company after? I, I liked it. I'm just curious, like why that one over, over all well, this crazy HDs? What Mike's always said about in, in, on the um, image DVD commentary, there's a whole section about the um, history of something weird. Cause it's like him and Dave Friedman, oddly, Herschel wasn't doing the commentary with Mike on that okay. one, Dave. <laughs> and um, Mike talks about how, you know, obviously that the movie Something Weird has a great title. And he was trying to think of like an umbrella term that would kind of okay. cover everything that he planned on releasing. And I mean, obviously that did the trick. I, that's kind of what I assumed you were going to say. Yeah, it's such an amazing name. <laughs> it, well, it is, what was funny is that he didn't get permission to do that. And um, there's an individual, uh, Jimmy Maslin, who owns the Herschel Gordon Lewis and Doris Wishman collections. And one, same as the situation with Dave Friedman, where Mike gets a call one day and he's like, what are you doing selling my movies? And like, you named your company after, you know, a movie that I own. <laughs> and uh <laughs> smooth things over and they became best friends. Um, yeah. That it seems to be a common theme that it's impossible not to love Mike once you meet him. I've heard that even from, uh, from, from other interviews I've read about him. It just seems like he was a very easy person to love. So no, he's very charming for sure. That's great. Um, now, is this something that you thought you would be doing? Did you also love film? Is this a, was this a passion for you your, your, you know, throughout your life as well? Well, I've always loved film since I was a kid. I mean, I, one of my earliest childhood memories is being in the backseat of a car during Night of the Living Dead. I was like eight years old. I mean, I don't know what my mother was thinking, <laughs> taking me to, you know, like, oh, she'll just sleep in the backseat. No, I didn't. And I was pretty traumatized, but it kind of set me on a trajectory <laughs> to like watch horror movies when I was a kid. And, um, you know, in my later teens and early twenties, I mean, I was watching a lot of basic cable and there was films like psychomania werewolves on reels and you know dunwich horror all like films that you wouldn't normally be like see and also was the early days of vhs so i kind of dug in deep i went to college for art history but i minored in film history as well um so i've definitely had an interest in film but i found like in my mid-20s that i was wanting to watch more and more like exploitation films or stuff that was kind mm -hmm. of like off the grid. Um, and fortunately I lived um, in New York City at the time and I was like a block or two from Kim's video. So you know, I pretty much went to college there. <laughs> I was like, I will watch every movie I can. And I got a, lot of, a good education by, um, you know, renting many, many movies at Kim's video. And that's where I discovered something weird, but, you know, at the time just remember going into the section where they had exploitation films and you know obviously there's the, the ones you'd expect to see like the Russ Meyer movies and Herschel Gordon Lewis and Doris Wishman and those hadn't been released by something weird at that point but um you know I got those under my belt you know basket case big box <laughs> VHS uh -huh. uh, John Waters movies and whatnot but then there was a weird little section of just like kind of DIY looking you know like 
cases with really brightly colored spines and garish lurid artwork on them. And I was like, what is this? I, I'm going to just you know, bring some home. And that was my introduction to something weird video, you know, watching the Sin Syndicate and Diary of a Swinger, <laughs> movies like that. So um, I started to like want to know more about, um, in particular, 60s exploitation cinema, because I, you know, obviously that's kind of like a seedy underbelly of film that um, at that time most people were unaware of. So I was fascinated and kind of decided, you know, I wanted to learn as much as I could. And Mike Franey used to come out to the East Coast um, to do the Chiller Theater Expo. And I would go to that anyway, just because I was a horror fan and whatnot. So I called him up at the office before the show. And I said, hey, you know, I, I want to do an article about your company. And Dave Friedman was going to be his guest at that Chiller. And I said, can I interview you both? And, you know, we met and, and he just, I'll always forget, you know, well, one thing I'll never forget is just, him asking me like, well, you know, who are your favorite, you know, directors? And I said, oh, I love Doris Wishman and, you know, Michael and Roberta Finley and his eyes just lit up. <laughs> it's like, really? Because I don't think he ever heard a woman say that before. Um, okay. But also that kind of gave him a, you know, an idea of what kind of person I probably was. <laughs> um, and that was the beginning of our friendship and eventual relationship and partnership. Wow. That's amazing. So you went to school to study art history and then you minored in like Carl Theodore Dreyer and Kurosawa and like that kind of film well, history. Actually it was more, um, I, when I was into film history, I was, my area of like expertise with, um, with art was like early 20th century German art. So I kind of got okay. into learning about that type of film and then, you know, kind of went on from there. So. There, there's a lot of probably, um, well, I don't want to draw that. I don't know if there's an easy parallel, but German expressionism was, and there, there, there's some stuff in there that's pretty um, pretty out there visually and the subject yes. matter can get pretty intense. So um, maybe that's, there is a natural progression from that to exploitation films anyways. Um, I, you, you mentioned this earlier with, um, uh, when you were talking about, oh shoot, sorry. One, one of the movies we were just talking about earlier, you mentioned how it, it transfers well to the politics today. Oh, Girls in a Chain Gang. Girls in a Chain Gang. Um, a girl in a chain gang. And I think that's so interesting. This is one of the things that I, as I've gone deeper in, into the world of uh, kind of global exploitation films through, whether it's Mondo Macabro or some of the stuff that Arrow's found or these different, you know, ag for releases. One of the, the, the thing that's, I think it's very interesting is a lot of times there's either, you know, you either get like, uh, I guess, kind of personal stories or stories literally from someone's life and kind of what they know, or you get these super wacky stories. Uh, but but there's always a, a a meaning like more more often than you think there's there's a deep meaning behind these movies that you know the director was actually trying to do something uh, meaningful and I think a lot, a lot of people that aren't in that world don't don't see that part. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's not even intentional. I mean, when when you're doing anything, I mean, like I'm you know I, well I should also say like besides doing the film thing, I I wasn't I mean I am an artist, but I haven't I'm kind of retired since I've been doing something weird full time. Um, there's like when you're going about making something creatively, it's like you're just doing it because it's like what you need to do at the time. And then it's usually in retrospect, you look back and like, oh, that had something to do with, you know, what was happening. I mean, like a time capsule type of thing. Um, and, you know, what I found really interesting about when I was doing some research about Girl on a Chain Gang is that, you know, it was, it was Jerry Gross's first film. And to come out the gate with like, a really heavy hitting film, but yeah. I think he really was just 
wanting to make a good film, but an, an exploitation picture. It's just that it was timely because of what had happened with, you know, um, civil rights in the South in the early 60s and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, and then now, like how many years later, <laughs> 60, 70 years, I mean, it just looks like, wow, we're still dealing with these same issues and it's, and it's very heavy, you know, in some ways, but um, yeah. also brilliant because, you know, to, to make something that, that holds up. And I mean, I was talking to, um, you know, the people at the film detective, they actually asked me to do commentary and I told them that I couldn't because it's like, I'm kind of getting triggered, you know, and I'm not a triggery person. I mean, I work for something weird, nothing bothers me for some uh -huh. reason, just because that was so um, timely and we're in such a, you know, kind of divisive socio-political climate. I, I just right. kept feeling like, oh, this is like, this should, like this was like in 1965, this was made. This shouldn't be still happening nowadays. But, you know, that that's what is interesting about cinema is it does make you react in a way. Well, it, it's weird. You, you mentioned uh, just kind of in passing, you mentioned Gone with the Wind earlier. Um, but I, you know, have you actually seen that recently enough to kind of recall pieces of it or parts of it? Or, um, yeah, you know? I mean, it's it, not recently, but I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the film. Okay. So it, the crazy thing about that, I, you know, I, I actually just saw it for the first time last night. Uh, uh, I'm kind of going through these, a bunch of movies that, because I'm so drawn towards the fringe of film, I've actually never seen kind of the middle. <laughs> um, and so easy I'm to do. trying to <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So I'm trying to catch up a little bit. And I had that exact same reaction to that movie. I mean, there's obviously a bunch of stuff that's just problematic anyways nowadays. But there's also a lot of uh, when they start getting into the other so much in that movie, I was kind of uh, depressed a bit afterwards because I was like, man, that was going on in 1939. And like in a lot of ways, we're still looking at the other uh, or, or we're still looking for the other. You know, it's not yeah. North South anymore, but it's, it's, it's like it hasn't really, changed. I was like, Ugh. yeah, it's kind of upsetting. At times, yeah. but I mean, but that's like the one of the things about cinemas is that it can like have you know you react to it whether it be a positive thing or a negative thing or like you know people like film you don't like a film um, it's just that's you know the, the moving image is powerful. Yeah, yeah, and and that doesn't change. And and just to kind of bring it back full circle, that doesn't change when you get to these zero budget films, and that's the thing that I think as I've been exploring them more in the last call it like five or six years that's the thing that really jumped out to me was like, there's some amazing stories in here um, that are worth seeing if you can just get past the fact that it's a home video or like that it's shot on a really low budget. Like if you can just get used to that and kind of sink into that rhythm of that, it, it, it becomes more about the story and there's some really good stories in there. Yeah, and also for me, I mean, even if it isn't a great movie in and of itself, it's like, I like everything that I like, you can see. I mean, like you the, you know, the time capsule aspect of them, like, you know, you're, you're taking a look at, you know, this, like, part of, I don't know, like, in my in particular, let's talk about 60s exploitation, it's like, you know, the average person wasn't aware that it, like, you know, there were being dirty movies being made, you know, that were like, yeah. there was an adult, you know, um, cinema out there that like, you know, people were going to I me, mean, but if you like grew up in suburban Massachusetts, like I did, I wasn't aware of any of that. So right, right, right. I heard about the, the combat zone down in Boston and like, oh, they show the porn films or whatever, but this was a totally different thing. I mean, it was, they're like dramatic films with naked people. And, <laughs> right, were, right. You know, but if you look back, you know, over old ad mats and, you know, there's quite a few people on the internet who do a great job at like, documenting the history of like where films were screened it's like 
this stuff was out there, but I don't know how many people were seeing it because nobody I knew was ever talking about it. I mean, my, my father certainly wasn't. <laughs> right, right. No, it's, yeah. And, and now it's, it's easier to see um, if, it, if these films were coming out now, they would be easier to find in a way. But the, a lot of the films that were made in the 50s, 60s, 70s that you're describing would never get made today for a variety of reasons. So that it, it's sort of like this, this time period, maybe even in the 80s a little bit, but it's like this time period where there was so much creative freedom uh, into some, some wacky subject matter, but also some dark ones, but it was, they were all just kind of mixed together. And some of these movies, right, it, it wouldn't be done the same way today. Yeah, I mean, what I always find interesting is when, when you've got like, you know, a quote adult film that has horror elements or, um, you know, they, there was a lot of subgenres of like 60s exploitation, you know, you had the nudie cuties, which were like comedic films. And then, you know, they right. kind of went into the roughies, which were dramatic black and white films with sex and violence. And then, you know, they also had things like nudie kinkies, which had more kind of fetishy aspects to them. And, you know, uh, up, there was like a lot of different variations on a similar subject. So, um, and I mean, I, I don't think that they discussed, the, you know, they, they, they probably didn't realize it at the time, but when you look at the whole body of material that was coming out, it's like, okay, they, they were all paying attention to each other because they probably saw, oh, so-and-so just put out like a nudie Western. So it's doing really well at the box office. So I'm going to make one too. Right, 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 right. It really did, did come down to mostly like making money. I mean, these people were in it, not just, you know, to be artists and to make films, but there was a financial part that was, you know, probably more important than anything and making sure that people like, you know, bought tickets to your movie. Well, I was, my intro to this world, let's just call it, was Lloyd Kaufman. Back probably yeah. 20 years ago, I started seeing drama movies. And I mean, you know, I think H.G. Lewis reminds me a little bit of him uh, when I've heard him do some, some interviews. Not, they're just shrewd businessmen first and like, you know, they're in the business of making movies and they're very good at marketing what they make. <laughs> yes. They're, and, you know, they, and we're all grateful for that. <laughs> so. Great. Yeah, definitely. So what we've, we've gone across genres a little bit. What do you go to to relax? Uh, what's, what's the type of film or, or what do you go to to just kind of wind down? Um, I, I, well, I'm embarrassed to say what I watch, like when I'm not doing something weird stuff or, you know, when I'm catch up with all of my blu-rays that i get from my partner companies <laughs> and you know because i'm always like i'm more excited about their other releases than the something weird releases most of the time because obviously i've seen all the something weird ones um yeah. but i mean i like like you know i was on a kojak binge this last month like went through <laughs> my you know kojak box sets there's something comforting about those but i mean most recently um the thing that's really I've been super excited about is, you know, Seven released their uh, folk horror box set. And yeah, yeah. I love those kind of films anyway. I'm all about, you know, the, the witchy stuff and, you know, anything to do with like, you know, that, that time, you know, anything has historical and horror and all those things I, I really, really enjoy. So um, started digging deep into that about two weeks ago and it's a lot of movies. It's going to take a while. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm gonna I'm gonna get to it this year. I've seen Blood on Satan's Claw. Oh, um, one of my favorites. <laughs> I was amazing. I was like, how is this not more famous? Like, you know, I mean, if you look at a movie like The Exorcist, I understand why it's famous. Like, it's a it's scary as hell, you know. But 
the, some of the stuff they do in Blood on Satan's Claw, like it's a, I don't know, like I don't think you have to be interested in the more obscure stuff to like that. Like I'm almost curious to show, you know, these kinds of movies, like I think they're just great. I don't know, maybe I'm biased, but. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, fortunately, um, this place is, you know, where, you know, movies are being streamed. So like, you know, if you go to Shudder or even Amazon Prime and, you know, if you go way deep down the rabbit hole, those movies are there. It's just that mm. they're not coming up unless like you've got an algorithm that's gonna like, oh, you might like this or whatever. But I, you know, I do know that like the movies that Severin's been putting out with that um, book horse that did come out on Shudder this past month and maybe that'll open a lot of people's eyes and you know it's the same with us like when we have done channels like when we did comp it's like you know people just weren't aware of these things and as soon as you do learn about them it's like you want to see more or yeah see what else is available so i i, I think you've answered this again kind of you, you've certainly touched on this implicitly but just to ask is something weird ever going to have their own line of discs um, I would say at this point, not the way that they were in the past, where it was just the something weird. I mean, um, something weird still does sell DVDRs that we make in house. Um, okay. And a few years ago, we cut back on those quite a bit because well, our equipment's starting to crap out, and um, having to have an employee to do that. I mean, it's just financially, things are different, and. And that's okay because this whole business is the business model has changed for everybody. Um, what we I have found that like most of our customers are buying downloads. So you know they something where catalog is available. You just got to go to the website, and you know either it's available on a Blu-ray or it's available on a DVD or a DVD-R, or it's available as a download. So the content's always going to be there in, in one format or another. But um, we've got a lot of Blu-ray releases coming out with all the different partners. And I mean, ideally, you know, it's all gonna come out. Um, this year, I'm super excited about uh, the Doris Wishman films coming out through AGFA and they'll be distributed by OCN. And it's not a specifically something weird project. Um, Jimmy Maslin, who owns those films, it's gonna be, you know, he's licensing them, but because they're associated with something weird video, we get to co-brand on those. And, um, and I'm really involved with just what, what's going to be on them and arranging all of the commentaries and all this other stuff because it, it's a labor of love for me it's a pet project <laughs> so and yeah. you know there's all kinds of like smaller things um but mostly um i just see something weird like i guess referencing its own history um because over the years i mean mike and i collected so much paper ephemera and archives related to the actual films um that no one has seen. And I mean, some of the stuff is, you know, shown up on, you know, galleries on DVDs or even on some of the new Blu-ray releases, but having um, all of those materials available like in print is kind of what I see the direction of something we're going in in the future, as well as um, there was another thing that we started doing a few years ago where I was contacted by a record label, uh, Modern Harmonic, um, just okay. part of Sunday's music. And, you know, they said, hey, have you ever thought about doing something weird soundtracks? And Mike and I had thought about that, but we just really hadn't had the time to pursue it. And I was like, yeah, have thought about it. <laughs> and like, what, what yeah. do we have to do to make it happen? And um, that was like when we released Something Weird Greatest Hits, um, it was about three years ago. And yeah. since then we've continued to just have 
you know, releases based on either feature films or just, you know, the most recent um, Modern Harmonic plus something weird um, album was the best of Doris Wishman. So it's the trailers and incidental music. And um, the funnest part of that record is that um, I was able to get access to a lot of Doris's original reel-to-reel -reel audio. And in them, she's just like barking out, you know, directorial orders at people oh, or wow. getting yeah. <laughs> getting curmudgeony it's really awesome and we kind of put little like sound bites in between the tracks as well so um there's just going to be a, a lot of things that people like haven't seen from us before that will be coming out that's great um well that that's a pretty good segue into my in my last question and maybe you kind of got there but you know what what should we expect from something weird going forward well, the thing I'm most excited about is I'm going to start a division of something weird called Something Weird Press, and we'll be doing books. And you know, I want to make really, really beautiful coffee table books with lots and lots of imagery in them, um, and various people writing essays. And the thing that's going to be interesting about them, it's not going to just be like you know your basic like you know. I guess, exploitation film poster books or something like that. I wanna get very specific and do the like definitive, like, you know, time periods. Let's say like, you know, burlesque films from the 1930s through the 1960s, you know, or do, you know, the films of David F. Friedman. Um, and one of the first projects I've got on the slate and I've been actually been starting to work on it is um, Dave Friedman had done a second um, part to his autobiography, uh, Youth of Babylon, called Kings of Babylon. And you know, anyone who knows Dave Friedman has heard about this project. Um, well, he lost it. <laughs> I mean, like literally lost a manuscript. Okay. And he had given Mike and I a couple of chapters before he lost the whole thing. And um, it never got published. So that's going to be the first thing that, that Something Weird Press will publish is these first three chapters. And I may even do each chapter as a book because there's just so much accompanying visual material that people have never seen. And it, it would fill up a lot of pages that um, that's the direction that I'm going to probably be taking the company in. And like even doing things like, you know, um, books of all the VHS covers or um, putting something weird in its own historical context related to the films that you know we released over the years so um, but it, that, that's actually perfect to do that though and I, I guess it sounds like you've already reached this conclusion but that immediately makes sense as I hear it because it's not that you're saying something weird in and of itself is the thing that needs to be preserved but it, it's like the nature of the way that it was built was through time periods and pieces and collections and like it, it's natural extension to then start to celebrate those right yeah, that, that's, that's actually a very good way to describe it. I mean, it would mostly be, I mean, like, I'm not going to do like every single, you know, let's say if we're doing a, a sexploitation history book or whatever, um, it'll be, let's say, you know, the roughies. And we'll just be focusing on the things that we released, you know, not like the whole entire genre, <laughs> you know, it's just how it relates to something weird. Um, and which is like a giant chunk of that, mind you. I mean, we'll probably, I'm sure we will reference some things that weren't, didn't come out, but I mean, as far as, you know, what the, the bulk of the content's gonna be like, you know, if you look at the Something Weird website, it's gonna be that in book form. And I love that. Prob probably There's... reprinting catalogs too. Oh, nice, okay. 
Yeah, there's, I mean, just in the, I'm just off the top of my head in the last year, I've personally bought a beautiful hardback uh, kind of coffee table book around um, Italian uh, post-apocalyptic films. Um, there's a book from Grindhouse that j just got released. I, I don't have it yet, but uh, it's a Rudy Ray Moore kind of biography. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, this is fantastic. Yeah, Mark Murray did a great job on that. Yeah. So it does, it does feel like it's the right time to also, it's interesting, right? These things go in cycles, like books were supposed to be dead, right? But now uh, within a focus area or a niche or, or you know, area, there's actually people really want these books on their shelves. Like there, there's some great history there. Yeah, and I mean, people just like ha having the reference materials as well. And, you know, I find myself with books that I've collected over the years. I'm a big book collector. Um, mm -hmm. I look up information all the time, you know, if I want to find out more things. So, and the other thing is a lot of the video companies that have been doing these super deluxe, you know, editions of Blu-rays have been including really wonderful accompanying books. And yeah. um, this would just be kind of an ex similar to that, but maybe you know, a little bigger than one that would fit yeah. in a DVD case. Uh, well, I had imagined <clears throat> coming into this that you were somebody who led through passion and kind of a, you know, uh, you did this for love, but it's been really interesting just hearing your passion for this come through. It, it comes through very naturally. Um, I, yeah, I, I mean, thank you so much for making this time today. Um, well, thanks for having me. I, yeah, it's been really, really nice to, to speak with you and sit down with you. And I, I hope that the Something Weird Press is a, a runaway success. I know that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty active on Reddit. Um, and uh, people are actually, I would say, as excited, if not more, about this really nice hardback uh, limited book that's coming out. Uh, I see a lot of posts that on Blu-ray forums around the, the books themselves. So um, it, it feels like the right thing to do anyways, for what it's worth. <laughs> Yeah, well, with something weird, I mean, like we're, you know, we, we do have a social media presence. I mean, mostly it's on Facebook. I mean, it seems to be the age demographic. <laughs> I mean, even though I was talking about there being a lot of younger people into something weird, um, most the, the hardcore people are, you know, kind of baby boomers and, you know, yeah. Gen X people and stuff like that. And yeah. that, that seems to be where people gravitate is Facebook. But there's a, um, a something weird video fan page. And it's pretty arcane. I mean, there's so much fascinating information on there. And, you know, when you throw out an idea like, oh, we're going to do the books, I mean, you can see how much enthusiasm there is. So, I mean, I, I definitely am excited about it for other people as well, because, you know, it's going to give me something to do till I'm an old broad. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, I know that there's an audience for it. So I'm looking forward to it. I love it. Well, I can't wait to see and, and I can't wait to see the future of Doris Wishman and, and all the other releases that come out through your partners um yeah i look i really appreciate the time it's been, it's been great speaking with you well thank you